Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pour Over Podcast, where we seek to share the table with storytellers and seekers alike, hopefully and almost certainly over a great cup of coffee, where we seek to help you flourish and want to see you flourish in your mental health journey. We're your hosts, Jonathan Coggins. And I'm Kyle Ridgely, and I hope that this is a space that is safe and inclusive for all. Welcome to the table. everybody and welcome to the table welcome to what is now known as the pour over podcast um, we hope we caught our first episode of the the pour over podcast our rebranding episode kind of unpacking that and what that means for us here as peaks and valleys um and so welcome to the table my name is jonathan coggins and i'm joined by my other host Kyle Richley. What's up? Kyle, how you doing today, man? I'm doing good, you know, um, making it, you know, a little tired, you know, Monday's coming up, so. <laughs> Monday's around the corner. I, I feel that. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, before we introduce our guest today and, and dive into this topic, I, I, I just want to take a moment to say this because it's just, it's on my heart and um, because, because we care deeply about people here at Peaks and Valleys. As of this recording, um, you all know that Russia has invaded Ukraine and, and that breaks, that breaks our heart um, on a humanitarian level. Uh, a humanity level, um, a, a mental health level trauma, and that that comes out of situations like this. And, and so we just want to say, you know, our our hearts with the the people of Ukraine, and um, just just share. It can never fully be in their shoes or completely understand, but but share just the burden of grief of watching what's happening. And so I just wanted to take a moment to say that, that, you know, if if you're somebody that is in a European um, region or country or in Ukraine and you're listening to this, um, just know that that we are with you, that our, our hearts are heavy for you, thinking about you and um, definitely, definitely in our prayers and, and standing with you and um Trying, trying to find ways that we in the West can get involved and in, and in, um, and help um, in any humanitarian ways. Um, so, again, as of this recording, that that's what's going on, and I, I just felt compelled to to just take a moment to acknowledge that and say that um, because, again, here at Peaks and Valleys, we care about humanity and people, um, and I think that matters. Um, moving on. Um, we have a fantastic guest today uh, for this episode. Uh, just want to go ahead and give um, a content or trigger warning that um, the topic is um, trauma and specifically religious trauma. So we may be talking about some things uh, that may trigger something in you, um, any bring up any any old wounds or, or trauma that you're currently walking through. Um, so just want to go ahead and, and put that content and trigger warning on this episode um if talking about these things is something that that you can't you can't handle right now um just wanted to give give that pre-warning so with all that being said um today we're going to be talking about religious trauma what that looks like uh, what that means in how to walk alongside people that have experienced religious trauma um, and, and how to care for them well. We have um, Brian Peck. of he, he works with an organization called the Religious Trauma Institute. And so with that, I'll uh, just give it over to you, Brian, to you know to, tell a little bit, bit about who you are, um, your story, how you got you know working with uh, people 
um, dealing with, with the religious trauma. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's, it's so good to be here with you all today. And um, as you mentioned, my name is Brian Peck. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and one of the co-founders of the Religious Trauma Institute. And I'm joining you um, today from the ancestral homelands of the Shoshone Paiute and Bannock people um, here in a place that's now known as Boise, Idaho. And um, yeah, I'm just really ex excited to be having this conversation. Um, I know using a word like excited when it comes to trauma um, <laughs> may seem a little odd, but this is something I'm, I'm deeply passionate about. And I think the more we understand trauma, uh, the more aware we are of our own nervous systems, what we need to be healthy and safe and okay in the world. And, um, you know, the better we are able to navigate um, the world and in religious context, um, if that's where you find yourself. And so you asked me to just share a little bit about myself, um, my story. I don't want to go into a lot of detail about that, but I, I, I come from I come from the church. Um, I grew up inside of a conservative holiness movement, um, K through 12 Christian school, did one year of Bible college. Um, before I began to deconstruct some of those beliefs. And um, it was during that period, and this was over 15 years ago now, um, I, I realized how isolating and lonely that was at the time. Um, deconstruction wasn't the, the hot topic uh, back then. The internet was fairly new. There weren't online support groups and so forth. And my, my lived experience, it felt as if I was, you know, going through this process completely alone. And, um, and so that really got me interested in, you know, maybe other folks are, you know, navigating deconstruction, maybe other folks are having doubts, questioning their faith, um, you know, maybe other folks have been harmed by religion. And, you know, it would be really helpful to provide some resources, some support for them. And so it's been something that's been part of my life. Um, because of my own experience, I think many of us in the helping profession come to this by way of our own journey. Um, you know, either we ourselves have experienced um, some mental health challenges or trauma of our own, or we've been, you know, firsthand witnesses of another person's suffering, and and we want to do something about it. And so um, that's really what got me um, interested in in this topic. At first, um, I was working with folks who were deconstructing um, more so than working with trauma specifically. And of course, there's some overlap there, or at least there often is overlap. And when I realized how some folks have been harmed by various uh, religious beliefs, practices, and structures, I, I realized that you know I needed to focus more on, on the trauma side of things. And so while I still help folks navigate deconstruction and provide resources and support for that process, um, I, more of my focus now is, is, is directed towards understanding trauma um, in general, and then also understanding religious trauma and speaking more about that, you know, wanting to be part of the, the research surrounding this topic, uh, as well as providing, you know, clinical support to individuals who um, who have been harmed by, by religion. So, yeah, a little bit about myself. Awesome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for giving us some context of who you are, Brian, and sharing just, uh, you know, a little bit of your story with us and, you know, the what got you into um, the work that you do. And I think stories are, are so powerful and, 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 you know, our lived experiences are so powerful. And, um, even if you're just a stranger on the internet and, um, but you get to share stories mm -hmm. and you get to see the humanity and people and where they were and what their journey looks like now. Like, I think that's just so awesome when we get to share those stories and experiences. Um, so before we take a real deep dive in this conversation to kind of a, a little fun part um, that most of our guests, we, we like to ask them, if you're a coffee drinker and, you know, we, we had a, a chat about this um, a couple weeks ago when we were preparing for this episode, um, you said that you've roasted coffee. Um, and so you're obviously a coffee lover. So a couple of, you know, questions like we like to ask our guests. Um, what is your, what is your favorite coffee? You know, like, uh, roast region, you know, how, however specific you want to be. And what is your favorite brew method and why? Yeah. 
that's a really hard question. It's like asking who who's my favorite child. <laughs> um, yeah, so I I think my um, relationship with coffee is is one of exploring and being curious and adventure. And so um, I, I do roast my own um, coffee beans in the garage. I have a, a modified popcorn popper, <laughs> so it's kind of um, low tech, but it gets the job done. And um, so when I when I go to to purchase uh, green coffee beans, I, I'm usually saying, "Hey, let, let's try something new every time." And and so yeah, I, I like to experiment with different roasts. Um, you know, I enjoy monsoon coffee from India. Uh, Central American coffee uh, tends to be a region that I that I prefer, um, and just a little bit more bright, acidic uh, kind of tones. Um, I'm, I'm not one for really dark roast, um, you know, maybe some espresso blends. I can, you know, appreciate a, a darker roast. Um, but I, I really like just the, you know, the more subtle flavor that you can get when you're not kind of hammering the, the beans. Um, yeah. so, yeah, so I, and actually, um, I, I kind of go through phases as far as different methods. I, I'm currently in the pour over phase, which is really great for your rebranding the pour over, um, podcast. Um, it's hard to beat that method in terms of, you know, just a, a really great cup of coffee. Um, you know, at times we'll, we'll do the, the French, uh, the French press, um, you know, for a bit more, uh, bold, um, kind of flavor, but yeah, pour over super smooth, um, delicious. I don't know. Um, that, that's kind of where I'm at now. I've, I've used, you know, you know, stovetop espresso machines. Um, the AeroPress is another really great method that I'll use sometimes if I'm just making a single cup of coffee. Um, yeah, I, I think when it comes to coffee, um, you know, for me having fresh roasted beans, um, especially fresh, fresh ground beans, uh, of course, that's, that's, that's the key. You know, once, once you grind the beans and they um, start to degrade pretty quickly after that and, and you lose some quality. So, yeah, as long as you're grinding your beans right before you're making your coffee, um, you're going to have a, a better cup of coffee. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely kind of a hobby, something I really enjoy. And it's fun to to roast, you know, kind of small batches um, enough for three or four days. And you always have fresh beans on hand. Awesome. Yeah, man, I, I'm totally with you on like Central American that you can really get those those nice, bright, acidic kind of fruity notes in your cup yes i i love that um and i'm definitely definitely a pour over guy like Mm -hmm. that that is my morning routine it's a pour over every morning before i go to work it's just so there's just something to me about creating a cup of coffee with Mm -hmm. your hands opposed to just throwing your coffee in a coffee maker you know Mm -hmm. um so I'm totally with you, but I, I do, I do also love a good AeroPress. I do yeah. also love good AeroPress. Yeah. So. yeah. You, you know, as you're mentioning that kind of making the coffee in the morning, um, we humans love rituals and, and there is something about having more connection to the things that we consume, you know, whether it's the food we prepare or, or the coffee we prepare. Um, yeah. There's just something about, you know, going through the process, grinding the beans, you know, pouring them in the pour over and, and just the, preparing your kettle and yeah, it's, it's more, I just feel more, more connected to the whole process, which is, um, can be a meditative almost kind of experience, which I, I, yeah, not all, not all mornings, um, are without their stress and they can be hectic at times, but just slowing down to enjoy coffee. Um, yeah, there's just, just something about that. That's really, really important in my own life as well. hundred percent. Yeah. 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 That's good. I, you know, I coffee has been one of those things for me as well. Um, that it that's a, almost a connection to life for me. I think that uh, for me, great conversations and uh, great relationship building has been you know done over a cup of coffee, and so uh, tend to be a little bit more. Uh, I guess it's a little tedious for me to do the pour over. I like doing it, but I don't do it as often because I just like to get a cup of coffee. Yeah. And- <laughs> it be done for me and I go to work, um, kind of that thing. Um, so I don't want to have so much stuff to do before I go to work and then, you know, all those different things. Yeah. So, but when I do have the time, I do enjoy it. But yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit before we get started, could you tell us, uh, kind of bef- uh, before we uh, dig into this topic, uh, what is a working definition of trauma specifically? Um, what is, uh, 
as it pertains to what you do, uh, what you've mm-hmm. seen, kind of things like that. And how can we be informed about that? And then how does it specifically relate to uh, religious trauma? Yeah. <clears throat> I wonder if, um, before before we dive into that definition, recognizing that there'll be folks um, who've tuned into this episode because they're interested in religious trauma and, and likely, you know, have a history of that themselves or you know someone who, who does. And um, I think just honoring each of our nervous systems as we navigate this topic, I, I think it's possible to talk about trauma and religious trauma without being re-traumatizing. And that's my goal for today is to, you know, maybe take a, a bit of a deep dive into this topic, um, but without it being unnecessarily activating for folks. One thing I would just invite us to all do together, if you would like, is just to, um, it's called exploratory orienting. Just look around your room, look out the window, just kind of scan side to side and just notice what you see. As, as mammals, we are always scanning our environment for cues of safety or threat. And folks who've experienced trauma often are in a heightened state of, of threat. And, and just noticing, I'm looking at my window here, seeing this beautiful ash tree that has no leaves on it at the moment. Um, just really connecting with that. When we, when we explore our environment, when we just kind of scan side to side, um, it, it, it gives a cue to our nervous system that we're safe enough. Um, to be open and curious and to to explore. And so I would just invite folks as they're listening as well, um, if at any point things feel a bit heavy or difficult or challenging, um, just take a moment, scan your environment, notice. Um, it's one of the, it, it's, it's so simple to do, and yet it's, it can be really profound in terms of uh, just the, the regulating um, effect of, of exploratory orienting. So you mentioned... Um, you know, what is trauma? Um, folks are talking about a lot. Um, you know, in some ways, the definition of trauma has been watered down, has been broadened. Um, you know, that's both maybe a really positive thing. More folks are recognizing, um, you know, the impacts of trauma. And, um, but it's also been a bit challenging to talk about it in, in more specific kinds of ways. So I really appreciate uh, SAMHSA's, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, a definition of trauma. And I'll just share that with you here at first, and then um, you'll see how uh, our working definition of religious trauma kind of mirrors that uh, just within a religious context. So um, SAMHSA's um, concept of trauma is uh, individual trauma results from an event, series of events, or a set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. And a few things I want to just point out about that definition I think is really important. You know, when it comes to trauma, um, oftentimes we're thinking about the thing that happened to us. And if you notice in this definition, um, Trauma results from an event or series of events or set of circumstances that is, that is experienced by an individual. And so if we think of trauma as um, this mismatch between the demands placed on our nervous system and our capacity to handle that, you know, um, what may be traumatizing to one person may not be traumatizing to another uh, because it is very subjective in that way and it has a lot to do with our own kind of personal history, um, our, our capacity um, in that moment. And so if we think about trauma as not as, not as existing in the event itself, but as existing in our physiological response to the event, then we can begin to focus more on what does a nervous system need to be safe and healthy and okay, as opposed to, you know, how, you know, adverse was that experience, how traumatizing was that experience. Um, and so I think that's it's really important to, to, to view trauma through that lens, um, you know, when trauma, as far as PTSD was first introduced in the DSM in the 80s, um, you know, there was a real focus on the event itself, you know, it had to be life threatening. Um, and, you know, we talked about kind of really horrific experiences that people may have. And the more we learn about trauma, the more we realize that you can be in a in an unsafe context for you know a period of time, and, and that can have um, 
as debilitating of an impact on an individual as, you know, a more kind of obvious, you know, kind of intense experience. And, and in fact, when it comes to healing from trauma, um, it, it's, it's far easier for nervous system to navigate a single incident, traumatic event, um, than complex trauma. And, and there are many reasons for that. Um, and so, yeah, as far as the, the definition of trauma, I, I, I really like the, um, SAMHSA's, um, definition as, as a place to begin at least. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just curious if you guys have any questions or, um, input about just that kind of basic definition of trauma before we move into the religious trauma piece. Yeah. I kind of heard this theme of like safety. I know when mm-hmm. you started, uh, you did that exercise, um, bringing ourselves to this place of feeling safe. Um, could you unpack that for us? Like the, the idea of, of that, that safety that we, we, we need in, in that, yeah. that space. Yeah. So as we view trauma through the lens of nervous system dysregulation, we can um, notice that when things are kind of okay for us humans, we're in what we might call a safe and social kind of, um, you know, place where I feel, you know, like I can relax, I can let my guard down, I can connect with other humans, I can be open and curious about my world and surroundings. And then if we were to experience a threat of any kind um, in that state, we would go to maybe a startle response at first, Um, we'd orient towards the threat, we wouldn't be as open and curious about what's happening around us, we'd become very focused on, on the threat. And then we would, we might at that point move into um, a flight response. We, we typically want mm-hmm. to, you know, move away from the, the adverse experience if we can. And if that's not possible, we may find ourselves in, in a fight response where we're activated. We want to do something to defend and protect ourselves. And if, and, and if we're able to, at that point, um, resolve the threat um, or escape to safety, then we'll come back to a place of, of feeling safe and social again. You know, it may take some time for us to settle back into um, feeling safe again, um, but that happens fairly naturally if, if we can resolve that experience. Unfortunately, with um, a lot of forms of trauma, it, it happens when we want to escape to safety, but there we can't. We can't escape. Um, you know. We're, we're barred from that. There's too much pressure on us. Um, it wouldn't be safe to try to escape. Um, we can't fight back because maybe we're in a system that has too much control or power over us. And, and we would, you know, experience more harm if we tried to uh, defend ourselves. And so we, we move into a, a freeze collapse or, or sometimes a please appease response. Um, we might imagine the bully, you know, is, is pinning us against the wall and we want to escape to safety, but we realize to run would be, you know, to invite more, more harm or to fight back would be, would be fruitless because we couldn't um, overpower them. And so we might move into a, you know, pleasing and appeasing, like, how can I say whatever I need to say to escape this or to get out of this, um, or that, that the freeze collapse response. And that's a, a really, um, adaptive survival response for mammals. Um, you can see this in the wild when, you know, the lion's chasing the deer right before it pounces, the deer will kind of go limp and, um, predators, um, evolve to, you know, attack moving animals. Um, they're not scavengers. And so they, they, they may walk away from an animal that's, um, appears to be lifeless. They may, may, may interpret that as being sick or something wrong with it. And, and, in those moments when the predator kind of steps away or isn't directing all their attention on the prey, um, you'll see it kind of spring back to life again um, and then and then, then escape. And so when it comes to trauma, it's often the result of experiences where we needed to do something, but we're prevented from doing that. So it, it lives in our nervous system as this unresolved survival response. We needed to know that we were strong enough to defend ourselves, but we, we didn't have the felt sense experience of actually defending ourselves. And if you, um, you know, like I mentioned in these, these examples from, from nature, other um, non-human mammals, whatever state they're in, um, when they experience the trauma, um, you know, if they're in a fight response, when they come out of that freeze response, they'll go back into a fight response. You'll see them, you know, kicking and and fighting. Um, if they were in, in, in a, a flight response, you'll see them, um, 
you know, completing that response. They'll, they'll just run. The, the, the lion's no longer chasing them, but they're going to run until they have the felt sense of I've run far enough, fast enough to escape. And then their nervous system kind of resets. You might see them trembling and shaking for a few moments, getting back to a place of I'm safe and I'm okay. And when we, when we humans um, find ourselves experiencing trauma, often we don't have that completion. And, and, there's, and it lives in our, like I said, lives in our nervous system as this you know, unresolved experience. And we want there to be completion. And so when we think of, of how do we kind of resolve trauma, um, we need to get back to that place of safety, um, which often is um, requiring our nervous system to go through that fight response, to go through that flight response, to, to somehow, um, you know, have that felt sense experience of doing what was necessary then, but doing that now um, as a way of resolving that. And so... Yeah, you know, when it comes to to safety, we we humans want to be safe and social. We want to be connected. It's you know we, we're social mammals. Um, we need each other, and um, trauma often replaces that that sense of connection with um, you know disconnection. It, I can't trust other humans because humans have hurt me, and and that can be very isolating and disconnecting. And so we want to find ways of getting back to a place of feeling safe again. That's good. Yeah. Thank. Thanks for unpacking that for us. Um, you really made me kind of go in, go into this idea of since, since, you know, we're, we're unpacking and, you know, talking about religious trauma. One thing that I, I notice, um, especially in religious settings, um, I wish every pastor in America could sit down and just just listen to this breakdown that you're giving, uh, because because what I see is just this when when it comes to people that are hurt by the church and and have trauma out of religious contexts, you'll hear this language of well the church is run by imperfect people. Mm-hmm. You know, just just kind of this blanket. I don't know. It seems almost as like a. Now my hands are clean because mm-hmm. I've given this. The church is not perfect. Response, mm-hmm. um, and almost like justifying something. Yeah, <clears throat> and it, it's 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 really disheartening too. Like whenever you see, especially, um, I mean, j- just within the last year, there there's been a lot of conversations and. Um, like within the the Southern Baptist Convention and um, talks about Mark Driscoll and um, that all these kind of things that w- whether it be spiritual, you know, um, sexual abuse, which has been a lot of conversation in these contexts, um, you'll 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 hear the same um, blanket statement that you know. Um, kind of defending the system or the person that perpetuated um, and created the trauma. Like how, how do we, without dehumanizing people, how do, how do we, how do we disarm that? Yeah. You you know, I think that that response that you're referring to is, is, is unfortunately super common. Um, You know, it's a few bad apples, you know, imperfect humans you know the, the church itself is is blameless but you know the, the the imperfect humans are are responsible and and while there may be some truth to that we still want to be begin to you know to maybe use a, a biblical metaphor you know by their fruits you shall know them you know looking at how is that tree cultivated um what what you know how has it been grafted to produce these kinds of fruits um, when you have, you know, patriarchal control, when you have power dynamics that aren't, aren't healthy and safe for humans, um, it's, it's no surprise to me. And I think, you know, obviously I have a bit of a selection bias because I work with a lot of folks who've been harmed by the church. It, it's not surprising to me that um, power and control would be wielded against other humans because it's implicit in the system itself. Um, and I'm not saying every church, but if you just begin to assess the power and control structures within different organizations, you realize that um, it, it's it's a perfect place for a predator 
home to exist. Um, it, it's, you know, you have all the secrecy you need, you have all the, the, the power and the control and you can manipulate and, and, and control the humans um, because the system um, allows for that and in some ways is designed for that. And I'm not saying this is a nefarious thing that um, churches have have done. I, I don't think, you know, um, folks got together <clears throat> in some dark back room and decided, you know, how are we going to create a structure that we can um, use against humans? But once that structure is in place, even if it was for, you know, maybe really adaptive and, 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 and good reasons at first, um, you begin to see how um, lack of transparency, um, lack of consent, um, just different structures that are so easy to be co-opted by, um, by folks to, to harm other humans. And so, you know, I think for me, um, just recognizing that there's no such thing as an organization that's safe for humans um, because organizations will tend to prioritize their own needs over the needs of the individual. And, and you'll see this again and again when there is, you know, uh, uh, some abuse scandal within uh, an organization, there is that, well, imperfect people, but the organization's solid and good. Um, you'll see, you know, circling the wagons and defending the organization um, as opposed to validating the experience of, of, of victims who have been harmed. And so when when we recognize that, um, again, it's not a nefarious thing. It's, it's, it's just kind of how organizations um, w function. And I'm not, I'm not just speaking about religious organizations, you know, political organizations, community organizations, um, you know, all of them are going to prioritize the needs of the group over the needs of individual members. And if we can acknowledge that, if churches can acknowledge that, um, if there can be informed consent to participate in an organization, um, we, 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 we're not going to try to intentionally harm you, but there's a chance that you'll be harmed in this organization. And if, if that happens, here's what you can do. Um, here's the recourse you can have. Here's how we're going to be accountable and responsible for our behavior as an organization. When, when we're missing those pieces, um, then you know, victims are just cast along the side, um, you know, and we'll use things like forgiveness to dismiss um, abuse and harm and, and just kind of, you know, push past it as opposed to restorative justice where we are responsible for our behavior um, as individuals in, in, in organizations. And so, yeah, th there's so many pieces built into um, organizational structures that um, make them unsafe for humans. And I, I don't want to paint too dark of a picture here because I think it's possible and I think it's where we need to shift the focus. How can we help individuals to maintain safety inside of groups? Um, taking on some more personal responsibility for that, holding groups accountable. Um, you know, when <laughs> I think if, if you're inviting someone to church, you're, you're, you know, promising them a lot. Like, this is a really great group of people. We really care about you. We want to do what's best for you. And, and we're missing that piece where there's a chance that this could harm you. Um, you know, if, you are, if you've ever had a medical procedure and you've, you know, read through the fine prints, had the informed consent, you realize like, oh, this operation is meant to be life-saving, but it could kill you. <laughs> and, and you have to kind of agree, like, I'm willing to take the risk. Um, to, to have this procedure. And so that, that level of informed consent, we're going to do our best to be a safe, healthy place for you. Um, and there's a chance that we'll harm you. Um, here's what you can do when that happens. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to dismissing and discarding and casting um, victims aside, which is, is too often the case. Yeah. You, you, you said something else in that, um, and that that was a fantastic just breakdown of really um, how organizations work, um, how to, I don't know, it, it kind of gave me some stuff to chew on um, as far as um, where's, where's my focus at in caring for um those that have any sort of trauma um, out of the church. And I, I, and I love the fact that you said um, the acknowledgement that in the, the informed consent that 
it's not always going to be a safe space. Mm-hmm. This There is the potential for harm. And then the other part that has really encouraged me um, with so many people challenging these systems, challenging um, the the structures and the people that have perpetuated the abuse. Um, and so I love that, you know, um, speaking truth to power, if you will. Sure. Um, I think, I think that's, that's great. I, I think that's something that we all need to be doing mm-hmm. um, in our own lives, whatever system or group we're a part of. Um, if that accountability is not there, it's a rotten system. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's great. And the, the thing that you, you also said in that, that, that really made me, me think, and it's, it's it's something that that I've been um, kind of talking to myself internally about, and uh, me and Kyle have actually talked about this a little bit before. I've talked about it with with some other people, uh, just just on a specific idea and um, even a theology and uh, that that's taught in the church, and it's been talked about a lot. Purity culture mm-hmm. um, that has done, I mean immense amounts of damage mm-hmm. to um, people's sexuality, to uh, their relationships, to their marriages. Um, and the the question, <coughs> excuse me, the question that I've asked myself is, why are we not, if, if, if you're in that, you know, religious context as a pastor or a leader, you know, you're in the church, why, why are we not teaching people, um, and talking about what is what does consent look like? Mm-hmm. What does healthy boundaries in a relationship look like? What is it like um, to to want to see both parties flourish in this relationship, rather than the purity talks that we've gotten mm-hmm. in? Like I, I think just for the longest time, and it very much so still is that the focus is in the wrong place because just personally me as a you know as somebody that does follow jesus like if 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 any of my theology or anything i believe is not leading to human flourishing mm-hmm. then i'm getting it wrong right um and i i think purity the idea of purity culture um which produces a lot of trauma mm-hmm. um i i think that that's the wrong goal that's the wrong aim and the question I'm going to ask myself is why why is why is people so obsessed with controlling people's sex lives and like mm-hmm. their relationships when it comes to purity? I don't know. Just again, yeah. you, you said consent and I just all those thoughts came into my head. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I think you know, consent when it comes to um, interpersonal relationships is, is, is so fundamental to human flourishing. And when we're taught to distrust ourselves or to, um, you know, give responsibility for ourselves to others, or there's these external forces acting upon us, and we have to do what we're told or what's expected in order to be um, accepted into the group. Um, you know, it does create a context where, where consent is, is kind of sidelined. Um, it, it's not, I don't, I don't care so much about what works for you. I want you to do what works for the group or, 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 or what kind of, you know, reinforces my own beliefs and, and, and ideas. And so why, why is consent not, um, front and center in a lot of organizations, religious and otherwise, um, it's because th- there's less ability to control others um, if, if we were to really value their autonomy and, and, and to value consent. And I, I think what's interesting to me, if we think about um, if we're unable to say no, then what does our yes even mean? And, and so we can, we can see that inside of, you know, interpersonal relationship or, you know, a sexual relationship if if there's so much pressure on me or if I'll pay a price for saying no or I'll be, be harmed in some way for saying no, then then does yes even mean yes? And, and so if we were to look at, you know, Christianity through that lens, um, if I can't say no to God <laughs> without burning in hell, um, you know, some more extreme fundamentalist um, religious beliefs, then then what does yes even mean? 
if if my if my if my yes is under duress, you know, um, is it is it an actual yes? And when it comes to trauma, you know that the that that loss of power and control. Um, we 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 need to feel powerful and strong as humans. And when when there's this underlying um, belief that you know we're we're broken and sinful. Um, then, you know, are we able to actually assent to something um, if, if to decline is, is to, is to um, you know, experience harm? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the whole concept of consent, um, it's easy to see that in the, in the kind of the purity culture context, um, but just expanding that one circle broader and, and looking at, you know, what does, you know, giving one's life to Christ actually represents? Um, is that something that's freely um, entered into? Or is there, is there adverse pressure and control at play? Um, is there a price to pay if you walk away? And um, if there's not, then a person can more, their yes can mean yes. You know, I can take it or leave it. I can do it because I want to. I can do it because it matters to me, as opposed to I need to do this or else. And, and so, yeah, I think um, the whole concept of consent, if we could just <laughs> infuse consent into all of our, you know, organizations and structures, um, it would make a huge difference um, when it comes to trauma, because that, that feeling of autonomy, that feeling of power and control is so necessary for humans to flourish. And, and when we begin to minimize that or undermine that um, through other means, um, you know, more um, adversive controlling means then you know there's there's a lot more potential for trauma to to, to occur mm. man that was that i i loved you know everything you just unpacked there and kind of given this expanding um the way we view consent and and that 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 phrase that you used what does our yes mean mm -hmm. if we can't say no to God mm. and be afraid of burning in hell? Sure. That, yeah. that would, that's, that's powerful. Yeah. That's, that's good. Yeah. If I'm saying yes, um, with, you know, a gun to my head, that's a very different yes. than I can freely choose what I want mm. to, you know, what, what, what I want to assent to or not. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think there's, you know, and, and there's some, I, I'm, I'm certainly no theologian, and um, but th there's some examples in scripture around, you know, Joseph wrestling with God. Um, this idea of, you know, you can't question God or you can't struggle with with, with God um, and, and you just have to do what you're told. Um, you know, I think there are, there are examples of, of, of healthy questioning, doubting, pushing back, um, maybe you know, even in thinking about kind of deconstruction and, and how wary the church is of that, uh, at least a lot of churches are wary of deconstruction. If a person goes through that process and is able to say no to all of it, then now they're in a position to be able to say yes. When I work with, with um, folks who are navigating an unhealthy relationship or something needs to change in a relationship for it to be okay for them, um, but but they they can't put separation on the table. They can't put divorce on the table because they 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 just can't get to that place of of even considering that as an option. As soon as they're able to say, "Well, I can leave," now maybe for the first time they can actually stay because I want to stay. And and so I, I think instead of seeing deconstruction or you know questioning pushing back um, as as a universally you know harmful thing for folks or a threatening thing to the mm -hmm. church, um, in some ways it, it, it gives up folks an opportunity to maybe for the first time actually fully invest in something because they want to, you know if we're able to say no then we can say yes in a way that 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 that, that reads different to our nervous system than if we're unable to say no. And, and so, yeah, again, you know, kind of underlying that, that concept of consent and how important it is to us. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I'll just say this, this, this one thing, you know, cause, uh, our focus is not, you know, deconstruction in this episode. Um, but it often leans I mean, to that. it leans that way. Yeah. But I mean, Jesus, 
kind of deconstructed what the disciples believe, you know, Mm -hmm. because I don't remember exactly where the reference is, but, you know, they came to Jesus and um, I don't remember exactly what the context was or what was said, but Jesus responded with, uh, you say this, but I say unto you. Basically, Jesus was was challenging what they previously previously mm-hmm. believed. Sure, yeah. Um, so there there is some context for um, for questioning, mm-hmm. for the mystery, for deconstruction, yeah. for reforming. If you want to, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. Jesus yeah. was definitely reframing a lot of what they <laughs> he, yeah. were told and what they you know believed at the time and what was yeah. uh, so it, readily talk yeah and certainly in many cases just outright rejecting the 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 religious structure of the day Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and you know to to kind of model that um feels really healthy you know um as organizations form over time they need to be questioned they need to be torn down again they need to be built Mm -hmm. in different ways and, and and to see that as a healthy necessary process as opposed to a threat um you know again that would make a huge difference in and mm-hmm. how we um interact with with religion um if 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 there weren't things that were you know off the table as far as questioning um yeah like like to wrestle with that it feels really important and necessary and healthy um as opposed to just you know going along that mm-hmm. when i've when i've talked to um, actually, I kind of pulled my my social media audience a while ago about how much of their religious experience was inside of a, a please and appease um, kind of response or physiology. And again, there's a selection bias because folks who tend to follow me online are, are folks who are interested in religious trauma and, and often a lot of survivors. Um, but the majority of folks were like, yeah, like I, I had to go along. If I didn't go along, I wouldn't be accepted. Um, I, I was, you know, actively living in a please appease response. And what we know about, you know, kind of trauma is in from a place of safe and social, we can be open and curious and we can challenge things. We can ask questions um, from a place of, you know, you know, fight or flight. We, we don't have the capacity to be open and curious. And from a place of, you know, please appease or, or freeze collapse, that that's kind of the, the last resort as far as a survival strategy for, for, for mammals. And it just is heartbreaking to think of so many folks who are, you know, dutifully attending church week after week, um, but not from a place of feeling safe and social, not from a place of, um, of affirming their own humanity, but from a place of, of please and appease. Um, I need to go along in order to survive. Um, you know, that, 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 that really takes a toll on nervous system for sure. Yeah. Man, I, I just thought about, you, you were talking about that people, people sitting there in, in that context and, and not feeling safe. Mm-hmm. Like outwardly, it seems like, you know, they're in this community and, everything's great, but internally everything is not okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, that feeling of being unsafe and just something, you know, came to mind um, as you were saying that, that, I mean, as, as somebody that, you know, does you know, identify as a Christian and, but also walking through my own, you know, deconstruction and, and questioning and wrestling and, and being okay with not being certain and being okay with mystery. Yeah. I, I see, I see when stuff like they recently, there, there was a very well-known, um, Christian rock artist, um, that, that, that declared war, on deconstructing Mm -hmm. Christians. Um, And I was just thinking like, man, I I can't imagine the amount of people sitting in that room as he was saying that, that at that moment was walking through some doubt and some questioning and Mm -hmm. some wrestling and just having this internal thought as he was saying that, like, I, I don't feel safe. You know, yeah. Um, it it just it just honestly breaks my heart yeah. that 
that that not only questioning is off the table, but but now it's come to this this point of it, it's demonized. You're mm-hmm. you're you know you're a false religion, and like it just it just hurts. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I think you know it's important to make the distinction between survival and safety as well. Um, we, we humans have the capacity to survive in really horrific circumstances. Um, you know, folks can live inside of uh, a, a relationship indefinitely uh, where the where their partner is is actively abusive and harmful to them because we have the capacity to freeze, collapse, to please appease, to to go along, to do whatever is necessary to survive. But survival is different than safety, and so you think about those folks, you know, hearing this this person declare war on on them, <laughs> on their on their humanity, their experience. And, you know, it's possible to maintain membership in that group. It's possible to go along. It's possible to survive. Um, but when we're talking about human flourishing, when we're talking about, you know, well-being and safety, um, you know, that, that's, that's connected to survival, of course. But, but it's, it's also separate and distinct from that. Um, it's, it's, from where I'm sitting, at least, it's not enough to just survive. We, we want to provide conditions where folks can feel safe. And uh, and really support their 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 need for safety, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we saying that you know that I know you mentioned in this episode like uh, the autonomy of people and mm-hmm. um, on on this podcast we we want to create a space where people's stories and their values and their experiences are honored and held and celebrated. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do, what's a good way to do that? How do you, how do you, as you see it from your perspective, what is a good way to, to kind of foster that? And then I think on the other side of that, uh, how do we foster this culture of wellness and recovery and what does mm-hmm. that look like? Yeah. Um, in a healthy way. Yeah. You, you know, I, I think, um, even in, in the question itself, you know, the, the, there's a bit of an answer there, you know, meeting people where they're at. Um, most, survivors um, want to hear people say, I hear you, I see you, I believe you, Um, your experience is valid. And when we value our beliefs or our dogma over another person's humanity, they will catch on that what's more important to you is that you're right. What's more important to you is that the organization is blameless. What's more important to you is that your beliefs, um, you know, you, you maybe value your beliefs more than the humanity and uh, you may not say that out loud and, 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 you know, with that level of clarity, but the message is loud and clear to folks. And so I think how do we foster that um, is to meet people where they're at um, without an agenda. Um, mm-hmm. I work with, you know, uh, folks who have left religion altogether, folks who are navigating um, trauma inside of religion and, and wanting to maintain their faith of origin. And and I don't have any destination in mind for any of my clients. Um, mm. Their journey is their journey. And I want what I would want for them is for them to be able to make their own choices without it being under duress, without it feeling pressured to believe any one way or to not believe um, that's their journey, that that's their experience. And so I think really that that sense of, of, of honoring a person where they're at, um, validating their experience is, is so important. Um, you know, within a deconstruction community, within even the kind of religious trauma community, there's it's just kind of human nature, I guess, for there to be this us versus them kind of dynamic begin to play out. And um, I, again, I, I want to support folks who want to deepen their faith um, as, as much as folks who want to find um, healthier ways to live outside of faith altogether. Like it's really about honoring a person's journey and where they're at um, without an agenda, <laughs> without a, you know, I want to bring you back into the fold or I want to, you know, to, to kind of create this us versus them anti-religion kind of um, dynamic. And so it really is um, meeting people where they're at, honoring their experience. And hopefully creating a context of enough with enough safety and support where they can begin to 
make decisions that aren't under duress. And, and that's a, that, that can be a challenging thing for trauma survivors to do when they've learned that in order to survive, they have to please and appease. And they may be looking to us as we're walking alongside them, you know, well, tell me how to do this. Tell me which, what, what's the right way. Tell me what to believe because um, they don't have, you know, the point of reference or the, the, the experience of actually making their own choices. And so mm-hmm. uh, sometimes that's, you know, creating little opportunities, you know, um, even mm-hmm. around coffee, you know, something like, you know, what kind of coffee do you want today? Um, and, and not, in, in, in really allowing them to decide, um, mm. what do you prefer? Um, and a lot of times, you know, when we've learned that we need to please other people to be okay, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of just put that back on, uh, you know, on, on the person asking the question, oh, well, whatever's, whatever you're drinking, whatever, whatever you're doing, it's like, well, no, I, I really, I, re- I care about you. I, I want to know what it is, what it is that you want. And, and that can be a new experience for a lot of folks who, who grew up in set of systems where they weren't able to decide for themselves. Yeah. Hmm. So one, one last, um, shift before we, um, end this out and you were every, everything that you were just talking about, it, it sounded like what what we talked about um, when we were setting up this conversation, a holistic approach to caring for people. Um, was was that your explanation? Is there anything you want to kind of deepen as far as that looking at people holistically? Um, yeah, you know, I, I think um, you know my my bias certainly is. Um, valuing a person's humanity, you know, that they know what's right for them, what's best for them. Um, if given enough safety and support, you know, they, they can begin to make their own choices for themselves. And so I think, um, one of the, the challenges with, with religious trauma specifically, and I think this happens with deconstruction as well. Um, deconstruction tends to be, uh, an, an, more of an intellectual process for most individuals, at least at first. And you may come up with, you know, a new understanding, new beliefs, new ways of understanding yourself in the world. But then there's the, what your mind knows is different than what your body knows often. And when we're trying to um, think ourselves out of trauma, when we're trying to have new beliefs and, and, and hope that they're going to, you know, change how we feel and experience the world, there's going to be some ability for this top down, this kind of mental process impacting your body, but it's, it's really quite inefficient. We have this super highway of information going from our nervous system to our mind, which then we construct a narrative to understand that experience. And then there's this kind of winding path of information going back to the body, um, where, where, you know, I can say to myself, you know, I don't need to be nervous. Um, I'm safe. I'm okay. But if my body doesn't feel safe and okay, it doesn't really care <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that my mind is clever and has this, you know, really great affirming message that, hey, you're safe and you're okay. It's like, well, no, I need to feel safe and okay mm-hmm. first um, before I can really believe that in, in, in a way that's more than just my mind trying to convince me. And so I think, um, especially when it comes to religious trauma, a lot of the religious experience is around, you know, the correct beliefs, you know you know, challenging your thoughts. There's, there's a fair amount of thought control um, that happens within religious context. It also happens in a lot of therapy settings when it comes to cognitive behavioral therapy, where there's this kind of almost, we're living in our mind and we're trying to rearrange these thoughts and beliefs and come up with healthier beliefs and, and, and hope that it's going to, to fundamentally change us. This is a more holistic approach is what does your body need to feel safe and okay? You know, what does your nervous system need? to be more at ease in the world? Um, what do you need to push against, to defend against? What do you need to let in? And, um, and, and coming at it from a more physiological um, perspective tends to be, in my experience, way more efficient and more helpful. And so, yeah, I think um, approaching really just trauma through that lens um, can, be, can be really helpful. Um, you know, I've, I've used this example before where, um, it's fairly common for folks to deconstruct um, 
you know, the idea of hell that they maybe grew up believing. And a person can come to a place where they no longer believe in the version of hell that they were taught as a child. And it can feel really good about that. Like I have a more compassionate, um, loving version of God. Um, and, and I no longer believe in, in, in hell. However, their nervous system still feels threatened by that. There's still, you know, certain messages will show up. They'll hear a song or a smell or, or something in their environment. And all of a sudden they're, their, their, their nervous system is feeling the, the threat. And so their, their body needs to know that they're safe and okay. And, and when it comes to resolving trauma, like we talked about earlier, um, we need to have experiences now that we wish we could have had then. And so for some folks that looks like, you know, when did you first encounter this message of hell? Um, you know, when you were sitting in that church service and you just knew like this doesn't feel safe or right to me. It doesn't feel just that a God would do this to other humans. And, and I needed to escape. I needed to get up and, and leave the church or I need to stand up and say to the, the, the minister, the pastor, like, no, how dare you threaten me and try to control me with fear. It's not okay for you to treat me this way. And this, this might maybe a fight response of, of defending, protecting oneself. And, and to have that experience now where we can approximate those physical responses uh, can be incredibly healing um, as opposed to just doing that more intellectual um, deconstruction process. Mm. Yeah. Um, I can, I can definitely resonate, um, with that because just like my own experience, um, of growing up in a, you know, pretty conservative denomination, religious context, um, you know, getting the message a lot of, you know, born inherently, you know, evil and an enemy Mm -hmm. of God. Like you, you, you can never trust yourself, Mm -hmm. Um, to meet your own needs, like to to find your own safety, like you 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 can't trust your body yourself because your your heart is ultimately wicked, you know. And so I, I can definitely resonate and and relate with with that. Yeah, for sure. I I, I guess as we're getting n- near the end here, I, I just realized that we haven't officially defined religious drama, so I just want to share that definition that we have here. Um, and we've talked about it, and I think we've we've certainly hit on these different components to that. Um, our, the working definition that we have um, of religious trauma is the physical, emotional, or psychological response to religious beliefs, practices, or structures that is experienced by an individual as overwhelming or disruptive and has lasting adverse effects on a person's physical, mental, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. And again, you'll notice how that sounds um, similar to the SAMHSA um, um, definition as well. And it's the it's just adding the element of um, the context in which that's happening, um, the, the, the religious beliefs, practices, and structures. And I think that's important to, to see that more than just the event. Um, you know, we've talked about how, um, you know, it's common for religious organizations to, you know, talk about a few bad apples or, you know, imperfect humans. Um, but to, to notice that th- there's, there's often structures in place that r- reduce a person's access to power and control over their own lives. And, and that can have, um, you know, a lasting impact on them and can, and can result in trauma in some cases. Well, thanks for, um, I mean, yeah, I, di- I didn't even realize that <laughs> we didn't go over the definition. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> glad, glad you brought it up. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Brian, um, we really appreciate you taking the time and coming on and having this conversation, um, really helping us frame some things in a great way, um, really break down some uh, from from a, a clinical and professional, you know, angle. Mm-hmm. Um, just us and those lay people that are listening, um, breaking down the stuff, helping us understand it better. And, and so hopefully we can, we can in, see that in other people that, that we interact with um, as they share their own experiences. And so like really 
finding good ways to to walk with this person yeah. to support this person well yeah so yeah. thanks for coming for sure yeah for sure it's really been my pleasure to to spend this time with you and um i look forward to to the to the continued work that you all are doing and i really appreciate um how you're bringing this perspective to to the church and, and the folks that you are reaching out to yeah sure. uh, before we end um where can um people find you the work you're doing um religious trauma institute i mean um obviously we'll have that in the show notes mm-hmm. but uh yeah get, give all that to us yeah so my uh private practice is uh, room to thrive and so you can find me at roomtothrive.com. Um, all my socials are um, at Room to Thrive, um, Instagram, Facebook, and um, and Twitter. And the Religious Trauma Institute, um, you can uh, find out, uh, out about the work that we're doing there at religioustraumainstitute.com. And then I think on all of our socials are Religious Trauma Institute on Facebook and um, Instagram. And then I think Religious Trauma on Twitter. Um, but yeah, those will be some great places to to see, um, to learn more about what we're doing. Perfect. All right, Brian. Well, thanks again um, so much. And thank you all for leaning into this episode with us. We hope this, um, we hope you walk away with some stuff to chew on and, and unpack and hope it reframed some things for you and gave you some language for some things. Um, as always, um, if you enjoyed this episode, please um, share it and like, leave us a review, all that good stuff. Um, we'll also have our Instagram in which you can connect with Peaks and Valleys in the show notes. So make sure you check out that for updates and projects we're working on. Um, but as always, Um, Thank you guys for listening. Um, And on the next episode, we'll have the table set, hopefully around a good cup of coffee. Peace. Peace.